Let's start in John chapter 14. We want to talk a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. Jesus, after having the Last Supper, the Passover feast with his disciples, just a matter of a few hours before he was betrayed into the hands of the Roman soldiers, according to John's gospel, it tells us that John gives us a lot more information about what Jesus said at the Last Supper than any of the other gospel writers. Now, we say this a lot, but, uh, but it's important, uh, I believe, to understand how these things fit together. John's writing his gospel some 60 years, 62 years perhaps, after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. He is certainly the last of the gospel writers by a long, long, long time. Most of the other gospel accounts were, uh, were written while Peter and Paul were still alive, according to the historical documents and uh, research. So John brings in some information after the fact, meaning after the other Gospels are, are uh, written, well-read, and circulated among the churches. And he gives us some information that the others do not. And one thing I, th I find fascinating about John's Gospel, particularly the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters, where he gives us information about uh, the Holy Spirit being given to us, it helps me to look at things from the standpoint of what Jesus is trying to communicate. Then I can compare that to the, from the standpoint of the disciples and what they were getting out of this, what they considered to be important for them. So let's just start in verse 1, John 14, verse 1. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. I probably should say as well, this is after Jesus gave the uh, piece of bread to Judas Judas has left the room. He's gone out. The disciples thought that uh, since he was the treasurer, Jesus, in whispering something to him, must have told him to go give to the poor. And that's why he left. Folks, when you're talking to somebody and they leave you, does anybody accuse you of going to commanding to be given to the poor? Jesus giving to the poor must have been such a common thing, common occurrence. That any time that Judas left the room, that was a possibility for what Jesus was telling him to do. At least that's what it says that the disciples, John tells us that's what the disciples thought. Verse 1 of John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. And whither I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas said unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. In the early days of the church, as God would move upon the apostles and the gospel writers, when these letters that were written to the churches were received, Church was different in their, in their day than it is in our day. And can you imagine being in one of these churches that received a letter from Paul or maybe it was from Peter. James wrote a letter to the Jewish Christians that were scattered abroad because of the persecution. But at various times, different times, many of these churches would receive a letter from Paul, he wrote most of them, or from one of the others, as we mentioned. Can you imagine what that would be like sitting in one of their services or in their gatherings? It'd be like getting a letter from God. We take for granted so much the truth of the word that we have available to us. In the first generation of the church, one of the most persecuted generations that on record historical record they had very little to go on except remembering what Jesus said and hearing from somebody else what they remembered Jesus said until they started receiving the letters the epistles I'm not sure we have the same appreciation or the same reverence for the word that they would have and, and you could well understand it. I mean, they're without anything. There were no historical documents in the beginning. There were just the 12 that had been with Jesus that went about proclaiming what he had done, who he, who he was, what he had done, and what he had said to them. And it seems to me that John, writing in 95 AD, somewhere around there, he has the advantage of looking back to see the state of the condition of the first, gener first century church. He's come toward the end of his life. You may recall that they tried to kill him. Again, historical records tell us that one of the ways that Christians would be tortured is by th being thrown into a vat of boiling oil. Well, Caesar tried to do this. Nero tried to do this with John. I think it was Nero. I might not be right about that. The Roman emperor, whoever he would be. Sentenced John to that death. And they put him in this vat of boiling oil and he didn't die. The traditional records say that he wasn't even harmed. Didn't even burn his skin. Well, if you had that happen to you, certainly it would confirm the power of God 
but maybe as much or more so than anything, it would confirm the presence of God with you. So when Jesus is talking to the disciples, the thing that John remembers, and, and certainly John didn't record everything that he remembered about Jesus in his ministry. Again, he's the one that said, if the world, if everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. But Jesus' emphasis is that he's going away, but he's not going to leave them comfortless. He's going to send them a comforter. Now, I've got a problem with the disciples. I know that shakes heaven to its core. But I do not get it. In Matthew's account, right toward the end of his ministry, you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples come to Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus asked them a very simple question. He said, who do men say that I am? The way that he said it is, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And Peter speaks up and answers for the group. He said, some say you're Elijah or John the Baptist raised from the dead or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You can see there's an element of reincarnation in their thinking or their doctrine that certainly was not inspired by God. But then Jesus turns it around and says to the disciples, but who do you say I am? Peter again answers and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Flesh and blood, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then the next thing that the Bible tells us, the next scripture, this would be verse 21. Well, let me back up to verse 20. After Jesus gives them authority in his name, then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. It seems to me that that should have been an earth-shaking event for them. Maybe not. Maybe they were all but convinced that Jesus was the Messiah anyway. So maybe this time when Jesus speaks to them and tells them not to tell anybody else, maybe that doesn't register real high on their seismograph. Maybe that doesn't shake them up. But then verse 21, here's what I don't get with the disciples. From that time forth, it's right on the tail end of his earthly ministry, so it's not a long period of time, but it is some period of time. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples. He can't be just saying this one time. If it says he began to show unto his disciples, then that's a progress, a progressive thing that's being spoken of. It's not saying at that moment Jesus told them that he was the Christ and went from there. It says from that time forth he began to show them. So you can see the progressiveness of, uh, of the progress of time when Jesus is taking something upon himself to do differently than he's done before. From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now here's my question. Why is that not the topic of their conversation at the Last Supper? Why are the disciples not asking him? 
wait a minute, Jesus, you told us that you were the Christ. Now you're talking about going away. You're talking about going to your father. You're talking about receiving us unto you. The same place that you're in, you'll make available to us as well. Folks, if you break that down, he can't be talking about them going to heaven. He's saying, where I am, you may be also. He's talking about relationship with God. He's talking about his work, his sacrifice. He certainly knows what's going on. He certainly knows what's up ahead to begin in just the next few hours. He certainly knows these things. But when he's talking about going away, why do the disciples not say, is this what you were teaching us from the time at Caesarea Philippi? Is this part of what you began to show us about being the Christ? Why is that not dominating their thoughts? We'll find out if we read down further, and I'm not sure how much we'll read. But if we read down further, Jesus says to them plainly, you should be excited about the Holy Ghost coming. It's better for you that the Holy Ghost come, and he can't come unless I go away. Again, he's talking about making the sacrifice. Do they know that? They should. From what Matthew 16, 21 tells us that Jesus did. They should know this. They should have a clue. Now remember, these were the guys that would ask Jesus about the parables that he taught. You remember in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus teaches the, the parable of the sower sowing the word. He spent a lot of time with them explaining these things to them. He's not trying to hold back anything. He's not trying to keep them in the dark. Rather, he's speaking in parables so that those that are really not with him don't get the benefit of the uh, revelation that he's sharing. But many times the disciples would come to him afterwards privately and say, what was that about? And he would explain to them. So why were they not asking? Why were they not questioning Jesus? Now, wait a minute. I mean, even that's a, the case where Matthew tells us that Peter begins to rebuke the Lord and say, not so, Lord, it's not going to be like that. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. He's not cursing uh, Peter, but he's saying, just as you spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost about who I am, now you're speaking by the inspiration of the devil to try to block the plan of God from coming to pass. Well, that would indicate to me that there's going to be something significant enough about what he's already taught them for them to want to dig further. They wind up being overcome with sorrow. As a matter of fact, when uh, one of the gospel writers tell us that when Jesus went out into the Garden of Gethsemane and asked them to pray with him for an hour, it said they fell asleep for sorrow because he said he was going away. They're so sorrowful that he's going away. Now, when you look at what Jesus did for them for the three years that they've been following him, I can certainly understand that they wouldn't want him to go anywhere for any reason. I get that. But folks, do you not realize that there was a possibility? There was the potential for his disciples to get more information about this so that they understood the Passover meal that he was going to have with them. Where he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you. This cup is the new, uh, is my blood, is, uh, the cup of the New Testament which is in my blood. 
there could have been a lot of things that they had found out or asked him about. There would be no reason for him to withhold that. After Jesus begins to clearly teach them and plainly teach them about going to the cross and being raised from the dead after three days, he told them that. He shared with them, not just once, but from a certain point toward the end of his earthly ministry all the way up to the end, the scripture tells us that he told them plainly. He didn't hide it in riddles or parables. He told them plainly. Why are they not pursuing that? Why are they not trying to get more information about that? How come they don't know about the Day of Atonement being fulfilled by Jesus' sacrifice? How is it that they don't know that the Passover was about him? How is it that they have not examined those things or inquired about those things from the Lord? I don't get it. When Jesus finally does begin to speak to them about the comfort of the Holy Ghost, which is the whole reason he went away, folks. The whole reason he went to the cross, Galatians 3.13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Then it tells us in verse 14 why he did it, that the blessing of Abraham should come on the Gentiles through faith, and here's the second reason, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Ghost in you. By virtue of the new birth, that's the whole reason for him going to the cross. And it just seems to me that if they had pursued the things that Jesus was telling them about his crucifixion, about his death, burial, and resurrection, it seems to me like they could have started on a much deeper level than what they come to. When Jesus starts talking about going away, there's not one of the bunch that says, oh yeah, I remember you were telling us about that. Instead, they say they don't know where he's going, which means they have not inquired in any way whatsoever about what he began to show them and teach them in Matthew 16, 21. In fact, about the only things that they say is we don't know where you're going and how can we see the Father? And Jesus answers as we read, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Verse 15 again, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. He'll give you another comforter. This word comforter is the word paraclete in the Greek. And it has seven different meanings. The Amplified brings this out, but it means comforter, it means counselor, it means helper, it means intercessor, it means advocate, it means strengthener, and it means standby. The Holy Ghost is all those things for us and unto us. Well, folks, Jesus, and of course he knows these things, which means he certainly could have and in my thinking, would have told them these things if they had been interested and asked enough questions to get the answer. Jesus continues. Let me get down to this verse 18. So Jesus says in verse 16, I'll pray the Father and he'll give you another comforter that, the, that he may abide with you forever. Then he calls him the spirit of truth in verse 17. 
even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Notice what he said in verse 18. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come unto you. Now that could have a double meaning. Coming to them might be in the person of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. Or coming to them may be what he's talking about returning to them after he goes to the Father. You remember after his resurrection, the Bible says that Jesus was with the disciples for 40 days. Well, from Passover to the Feast of Pentecost or the Day of Pentecost is 50 days. That's what Pentecost means is 50. So we know that he, John chapter 14, 15, and 16 is the account of the day of, uh, of the Passover feast. He's crucified raised from the dead after three days and then is seen of them for 40 days. So they had a three-day period where they were without seeing Jesus in any form whatsoever. Then Jesus was raised from the dead and he was seen among them for 40 days. So they only went three days in the beginning without seeing Jesus and about seven days at the end before the Holy Ghost was poured out on the day of Pentecost. It's not like They've been abandoned in any way whatsoever. And that seems to be what Jesus is emphasizing. Jesus seems to be emphasizing not just the fact that the Holy Ghost is come, going to come, but he tells them what the Holy Ghost will do for them. As I mentioned before, I think, he said, it's better for you that the Holy Ghost comes. Why are they not grabbing hold of that? Why are they not asking questions about what he's telling them about the Holy Ghost? Now, I'm, I'm certain that John's account is not a word-for-word -word account of everything that was done. I'm sure there were things that were said, maybe by Jesus, certainly by the apostles or disciples, that isn't recorded. The Holy Ghost is giving us the, the gist of the account of what happened and how it happened. But that doesn't mean there, there couldn't have been things said that were not responded to or, or something along that line. But John certainly doesn't bring it out. John doesn't even say of himself that he asked the Lord anything. The only thing John tells us that he asked the Lord was which one of them were going to be the ones to betray him. Outside of that, we really don't say, see or hear much from the disciples at all. One thing Thomas said and one thing Philip said that really didn't amount to much other than it shows that their, their minds were certainly not on the things that Jesus has already shared with them. I don't get it. We know that it didn't go the way that Jesus expected it to because after he is raised from the dead, he upbraids the disciples for their hardness of heart. Why didn't they believe? Why didn't they believe what he told them as recounted in Matthew 16, 21, about going to the cross and being raised again the third day. Why is that such a surprise to them when they realize by Jesus standing there in front of them that it really has happened? Why didn't they believe what he said before? That seems to me to be the thing that Jesus is upbraiding them for. Why didn't you believe me when I told you in Matthew 16? Why are you so surprised now that it happened just the way that I told you it would happen, beginning at that event at Caesarea Philippi. 
Now I realize not anybody else or very few people think like this or approach things from this angle. I, I, I know, I get that. But it doesn't lessen my shock any to know. I cannot figure out what the disciples had their attention on. What would be more important than Jesus saying that he's going to be crucified at the hand of the Romans, buried, and then raised up three days later? Why does that not warrant, or how could that not warrant, some real serious questions by the disciples? I mean, at the very least, why don't they say, well, what are we going to do while you're there? What about us? If they were so concerned about themselves, more concerned about themselves than Jesus and what Jesus is sharing with them, the truth that he's sharing with them, why don't we see him asking, them asking him questions about them? How are they supposed to handle this? How are they supposed to weather the storm? But it's almost a supernatural silence. I love Jesus says in verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. You know, we've been talking about the Holy Ghost in these midweek services for many weeks. I don't even know how long. I don't even want to know how long. I mean, it gets to a point where you get a 40-tape series that gets kind of hard to manage. But we've been talking about the Holy Ghost for a long time. And it's real easy to focus on the spectacular things regarding the Holy Spirit. When I was working with Brother Hagin, there was a situation where the Lord spoke to him and said to him, my people are missing the supernatural by looking for the spectacular. That's easy to do. It's easy to dig up the most spectacular stories we have about being led by the Spirit or the power of the Spirit of God coming on someone and the deliverance results or healing results manifested because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But folks, i got to tell you, I have come to realize that the day-to-day -day presence of the Holy Spirit may be for me the most important thing when it comes to benefit. When Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless, he's been their comforter the whole time that they've been following him around for these three years. He was responsible for just about everything regarding their lives. He was responsible for feeding them. He was responsible for getting them out of situations against the Pharisees when the Pharisees and the scribes would be questioning him or questioning them. He'd step in and take it over and defend them, protect them. He's been their tutor. He's taught them the character and the nature of God. He's taught them what the will of God is like. He's taught them to pray. He's delegated authority to them over sickness and disease. He's given them the gospel of the kingdom to preach, to testify to the fact that God wants things for you here on the earth just like he wants them in heaven, just like they will be in heaven. He's been responsible for just about everything for these guys, and, and not just the 12. 
most Bible scholars will realize or recognize that at any given time there were probably 120 some odd people following Jesus around. He's not responsible for just 12. He's responsible for all the ones that come with him. When he sends the 70 out, it's not like he has to go looking for who to send. They seem to be right on hand, right at hand. So when Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless, but then also says it's better for you that the Holy Ghost come, it's better for you that I go away so that the Holy Ghost can come. When he begins to share those things with his disciples, he recognizes the value of it. He recognizes the value, the greater position of having the Holy Ghost in you rather than like Jesus was walking with them side by side. But even at that, the disciples seem clueless. Even at that. Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world seeth me no more. But you see me because I, because I live, you shall live also. That's a perfect jumping off point for asking him about the new birth. Or asking him about the life that, that he says they will have. A lot of things could have been discussed there. But again, silence on the part of the disciples. At that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you, and you in me and I in you. He's saying to them, we understand. I've got to be a little bit easier on them in this. Because we have the benefit of the knowledge of what belongs to us in Christ when they didn't, in some respects anyway, they didn't know how to ask certain things. But Jesus is clearly saying in the day when the new life comes to you that I'm going away to procure for your sake. Then you'll understand what it's like for the Father to be in me and for me to be in you. I'd like to think there was somebody spiritual enough in the bunch to say, okay, tell us about that. Before you go any further, tell us about that. What does that mean? You're talking about a condition that's different than what we have with you, but that is the same as what you claim to have with God. Tell us about that. Folks, I've found, and I know we live in a different day than the apostles, but I've found the more that I focus on these types of things, well, let me say it this way. The more I focus on what Jesus said, that's when I come up with my questions for the Father, and he never, holds, he never withholds. He never holds back. I don't get my answers instantly, but I'll get them. They'll come. And like I said, I know a lot of people, most people don't look at it from my vantage point. Don't look at it from my point of view. But there's an element of this that everybody should have. There's a part of this that should be second nature to us. Rather than assuming we know what he's talking about and know all the ins and outs of it. But to pursue greater knowledge. To pursue the wisdom of God to understand the things that are ours. I, uh, 
one of the greatest blessings that I've experienced has come with realizing that it's simple revelations that make the biggest impact on me. I think a lot of times when we go into searching the word or chasing after God, I think the idea that many of us have is, Lord, we want you to reveal the deep things of God to us. But just simple revelations are the ones that put you over in life. Just here over the last several weeks, I can't even tell you when it happened. But all of a sudden, I found myself thinking about the reality that God's word is truth. And that anything and everything that contradicts that word or anything and everything that is an obstacle to that word coming to pass has to move. It has to be removed. God cannot lie. So when God says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we are healed, the human body has to amend. The human body has to yield to the truth of God's word. Now, how long have I known that? Like forever? But there's a difference in knowing something and seeing it. There's a difference in having mental understanding of truth and having your eyes open to see it for yourself. Those small revelations are the ones that I can look back to in my life and identified as the greatest source of blessings that I've ever received. Not some big heavy duty something. Just the reality. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. That word truth is the word reality. He's the spirit of reality. He'll guide you into all reality. Where is the reality of God to be found? Certainly in the word. So when he guides you into the truth. He's guiding you into the truth of the word. He leads us into the reality of what has already been done for us. I think so often it's easy for us to face a crisis and we wring our hands, we get all agitated about it, we make our confessions and we're making those confessions in many cases to make sure that God heard us so that he can undertake whatever's necessary and display his power to bring us into victory. More times than not, it doesn't work that way. More times than not, we have the privilege, and it is a privilege. We have the privilege to come to the realization that his word is true. And so without a lightning flashing from the sky or a voice from heaven thundering out above us, we just simply put the word of God in practice by speaking it. And over time, the victory becomes ours. It becomes seen. It was ours already. But then it manifests in the physical realm. Let's keep reading. At that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. 
And he that loves me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Jesus said unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Really? That's the question? Folks, there's a million better questions to ask than that one. But Judas says, how is it that the world won't see you, but we will? I don't get these guys. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Where's the follow-up question on that? Now, if Jesus, asked, asked, uh, if Jesus answered, it says he did in verse 23. If he answered Judas's question in verse 22, then obviously he's not trying to hold anything back. With me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, here he goes back to the Holy Spirit. The Comforter, which seems to be Jesus' whole point, or at least the major point that I see in chapters 14, 15, and 16. The real revelation, the revealing to us of the additional things that were said at the Last Supper. The Passover feast that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. The major theme of the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John is the Holy Ghost, the Comforter. He talks about related, but it centers around the Holy Ghost. Where are there questions about the Holy Ghost? The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father has sent or will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Now the peace he's talking about is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit. He's saying it's not a natural peace that the world can understand. It only comes by giving your heart to the Lord and coming into the family of God. This life that he said, because I live again, you will live too. There's the peace. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Where are there questions about that? Do they think they're fooling Jesus by acting like they know what he's talking about? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither yet let it be afraid. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. That sounds a lot like what Paul is going to write to the church at Philippi. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Jesus is saying to depart and be with my Father is far better. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto my Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Did they? Not initially. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, 
And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go up hence. Apparently, Jesus shifts toward the Garden of Gethsemane, where we know that he will sweat great drops of blood because of the agony of the paying of the price for sin and death. The Bible tells us that an angel came and strengthened him. And then Jesus went back to prayer and prayed even harder. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if that means he sweat even bigger drops of blood or just what. But it does that the Holy Ghost is trying to communicate something to us. I just don't get these guys. Now here's another thing that I might have to consider. And I want to throw this out there. It's very possible that we underestimate the value of the new birth. Or maybe we underestimate the power of the new birth. Maybe, Pentecost, maybe then they would have been able to answer, uh, ask the questions and get the answers to so many things that they missed out on. Now that's entirely possible, folks. We are so used to, uh, well, I'll talk about myself. I am so used to the life of God on the inside of me. I know that there are many times, maybe most times, I take it for granted. And maybe it's the life of God that comes into us that gives us such a, well, certainly advantage, but that's not really what I'm trying to say. Maybe it gives us such a, a new and different perspective that we're just seeing the result of unsaved men who loved Jesus more for what he said and what he did for them and the love that he showed toward them than really having an understanding of the redemption that he came to procure for mankind. Maybe that would have been beyond them no matter what. I don't know. Mark chapter 4. This is one of those times where Jesus speaks in parables, the parable of the sower sowing the word. And the disciples come to him afterwards and ask him. And Jesus shares some things about this parable. He identifies that the seed is the word of God that is sown into the hearts of men. He said of this parable that if you don't understand this one, you're not going to understand any of the others. He asked, if you can't understand this, how will you ever get a hold of the others? Because this one is foundational. This parable of the disciples to pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is the, is the boundaries or the realm where God rules or dominates the earth was created to be the kingdom of God it didn't fulfill what it was intended to be because of man's sin and the Bible says the law of sin and death began to reign over not only mankind but over the earth as well so when Jesus starts talking to the disciples about the kingdom of God not only does he say that the that the seed which is good seed, it's the same seed for each type of ground that it's planted in. 
but it produces different results based on the attitudes of the individuals in whose hearts it's sown. So he comes to the place in verse 26, and he says, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground. Now, the casting seed into the ground is speaking words. He's explained that prior to this example. Rather than the kingdom of God, we could substitute the healing of of God because that's part of the kingdom. Every blessing, after telling them the parable, explaining the parable, he gives them a couple of others to explain more fully. But he comes to the place where he said, the whole of the kingdom of God is like speaking words. Every blessing of God comes through words that are spoken. Every good thing that God wants for us comes by the words that we speak. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground, should speak the word of God into the earth, should speak the word of God into his own heart, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. He says you can't always expect an instant crop, but if you plant the seed and water the seed, plant the seed with your words and water the seed with your words, it will produce what it's intended to produce. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest is come. And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Again, it's talking about the blessings of God. Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadows of it. He's saying very specifically, the word that we speak might appear to be nothing in comparison to the size of the obstacle or the problem that we're facing. But if you plant it with your words and water it with your words, it'll wind up being so much bigger than anything the devil's got to throw at you. It's not even funny. Skip down to verse 35. And the same day when the evening was come, he said unto them, Let us ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awakened him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, folks, remember, this is right on the heels of Jesus talking about the blessings of God coming by speaking words. Words that might seem insignificant compared to the problem, but those words, by being watered, will turn out to be bigger. The deliverance, the blessings, the healing power of God will be bigger than anything that faces it. So he comes to the place where they wake him up. Not a bad idea, in my opinion. Jesus rebukes the wind and the storm. And verse 40, and he said unto them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now they were astonished. They feared exceedingly and said one to another, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Folks, they're thinking wrong. 
That's not the point. When Jesus says, why are you so fearful? How is it that you don't have faith? He's just described to them how faith works. It works by speaking in the middle of a circumstance, by speaking in the middle of a need. He says, why didn't you speak to this storm? Why didn't you say something to deal with this situation? Why did you leave it up to chance and just happen to God that the wind and the storms obey him? Jesus don't be like the disciples. God's word was spoken for you to benefit from it. But how much of the church world sits back like the disciples in the storm and just says, well, whatever. We'll pray, but God doesn't always stop storms of having no faith. They thought they were at the mercy of the storm. Jesus said that was a faithless position. I think we need to be researchers. I think we need to be investigators. I think we need to be toward God and God's word so hungry for the word of God, so hungry for the truth that we're constantly in the, in the making requests of the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth to us, to give us direction, to give us utterance, to give us wisdom. Those things don't just happen by course, folks. They happen because you pursue them. And if you don't pursue them, they won't happen. God will let you have as much of him as you want. He will let us have as much of the knowledge of his word as we want. He doesn't push it. He doesn't force it on us. It's available to us. But we've got to take hold of it. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. I had a situation uh, Monday afternoon. I had to drive up to Orange, pick something up, and turn right around and come home. And it was getting later in the afternoon, so I was in a hurry trying to something. Well, I usually don't have to travel far enough to... Um, make my car my prayer closet but I got in the car and started driving up to Orange and no real reason not even so much on purpose I just began to speak in other tongues well it took me that time of day it took me about 45 minutes to get up to where I was going got out of the car spent 10 minutes picking the thing up that I needed and started back down the highway well, by now, it's really just starting to get crowded on the freeways. And so I'm going along, and, and you see all these cars merging in from the right. I go, got over in the left lane as far as I could. Uh, so I was in the, what is it, the number two lane, not the diamond lane, but the number two lane, I think they call it. And I'm praying in the Holy Ghost again. So far, I've been praying for, I don't know, 55 minutes, maybe something like that between the time that I went up there and then starting on my way back. And out of nowhere, I had the thought to check my, I was in Beth's car, that little SUV she's got. I had the thought to check my uh, left mirror, and I saw that the, the diamond lane was clear and open. And I had the thought, 
Well, the self-contained kitchen trucks that they take to uh, construction sites and that kind of thing. This guy was trying to merge from the left, and he wound up taking almost a 90-degree turn, a 90-degree angle to, to swing over and get in the lane that he was going for. He wasn't even coming for my lane. But he had yanked the thing left so hard trying to avoid hitting somebody else when he was merging that he was halfway in the middle of my lane. And without any fanfare, I didn't have time to sing Jesus take the wheel or anything like that. I just knew there was such a peace, such a calm. I have no idea how the guy didn't flip the truck. lane that I already knew was open, if I'd had to look and see if there was anybody in the lane, I'm not sure I'd have missed him. And just continued driving down. I was on, uh, I had the cruise control on. I didn't even have to tap the brakes. Now, folks, I don't drive thinking about what lane is open. I certainly, not as a natural course of driving, make sure that the lanes are open to the left of me in case I have to get over in a hurry. But I count that as the Holy Ghost in the area of helper. No big deal. Not spectacular. I'm not sure it would make a list of miracles if somebody was writing a book. But the helper was with me. I've come to the place where I'm looking for the Holy Ghost every day. And I find him every day. I'm so glad Jesus leave you comfortless. For your help. You're always there to help us. You're always there as our strengthener. You're always guiding us into all reality. Guiding us into the truth of the greater one in us. Guiding us into the truth that we're more than conquerors through you that loved us. Guiding us into the reality of our healing. Thank you for guiding us into all truth. Holy Spirit, we make a place for you, not just in our church services, but in our lives. Make yourself.